chapter 30, starting at verse 1. The words of Agur, the son of Keah, his utterance, this man declared to Ithiel, to Ithiel and Eucal, Surely I am more stupid than any man, and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learn wisdom nor have knowledge of the Holy One, who has ascended into heaven or descended, who has gathered the wind in his fist, who has bound the waters in a garment, who has established all the ends of the earth. What is, what is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? Every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. It's about as far as we're getting tonight, going through and thinking, okay, we just have two more chapters in Proverbs and we're done. It's probably going to be a little bit longer than that. But there's a lot of great things here in these last two chapters. By the way, after Proverbs, right now my plan is to go to Leviticus and Numbers. Somebody was saying, well, that's real exciting. It's the Word of God. It's the Word. There, there's no bad ones in it. I guarantee you, you will be pleasantly surprised. We as born-again believers, we have something very valuable to offer the world. It doesn't matter who you are. If you are a born-again believer, the Holy Spirit dwells inside of you, and God will use you to His glory if you open your mouth, if you make the effort. What greater opportunity do we have to deliver what was first delivered to us when asked? And I've had people ask me. I remember when I was on staff at another church, this lady came in and says, I want to be saved. And it's like thinking, well, wait a minute, you can't just do that. First we've got to go through, I think there's a process. You know, it kind of takes you off guard is my, my point here. You can just be saved if God has stirred your heart. She had sat in the message actually the day before and realized that she needed Jesus Christ as her Lord and Savior. And so every once in a while, you know, we've been called to be fishers of men, and we so think, you know, just the strain and stress of pulling those nets in. Well, every once in a while, one just kind of jumps in the boat. Well, are you prepared? Are you ready when that fish unexpectedly jumps in the boat? What is asked? Well, what is asked usually is the hope that is within us. And Peter was very clear in that we should be prepared. In 1 Peter 3.15 it says, But sanctify or set aside the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason, for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. Why is it that Peter told us to give a reason for the hope? And he didn't just say, share the gospel. Well, we know the only reason that anybody ever has true hope from God is because of the gospel. And so, why is our approach for the gospel to come from the perspective of hope? Well, put yourself in the position of an unbeliever. Very few times have I ever had an unbeliever come to me. They may say they want to know about God, but very few times have they said, I want to know about the gospel. Just I've, I've never had that specifically asked of me. But really what they're looking for is, is hope in this life. Look what's been going on the last few years. Our economy, it's gone completely upside down. They say it's back, but it's not fully back. And do we really want it to be back where it was before? We see the world events that are coming up. I mean, two, three months ago, did you ever hear of ISIS? Now that's all you hear about. And doing some pretty gruesome things to stay in the, in the headlines. 
And so we see all of these world events. There's the the tribulation that is going on, the trouble and tribulation in Israel, and all of these things are going on, but that's okay. That's okay. We, We don't need to build bunkers. We don't need to start storing food and ammunition. We need to continue to go out and make disciples because God... God said it was going to be like this. But the world, this is as far as heaven as they're ever going to get. And they're wondering what's going to happen. And the problem with the world is they don't have hope. And there it is. We're able to share the hope that dwells inside of us. Unbelievers, they have no hope in the future. It's been said that a heart will be restless until it finds peace with God. And I can relate to that. I know that my heart was upset with the future and even today, I'll look at my grandchildren. What, are their, what is their, I mean, if the Lord tarries, what is their future going to be like? But then, you know what? It's all in control of God. God loves them just as much as he loves me, loves us all. Romans fifteen thirteen says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Based upon last Sunday's study, we also know that hope, hope is that which binds faith and love into the life of a Christian. Because if I don't have hope, I'm not going to have strong faith, nor am I going to exhibit very much love. But if I have strong hope, then my faith is going to be strengthened and I'm going to exhibit love because I know, hope trusting in God for the future, I know that God has a future and a hope for me. Secondly, why speak of hope? Because unbelievers are desperately lonely. Man, man is a pack animal. That's how God has created us to be together. That's why when you're sitting in your living room, the cat will come in when the family's there, or the dog scratching at the door, he wants to come in. And that's why we have that desire to gather together. My wife was gone for... 10, 12 days, whatever it was, visiting her mother in Oklahoma, and my son's never home, so I was all alone for 12 days. Nobody came to visit me. I was all by myself. For the first couple of days, it was great. I was a bachelor. Well, in one respect, I was. In another one, I wasn't. But nonetheless, it was kind of a good thing. But you just get lonely so fast. You get so lonely so fast. We even had a cat. This cat. Uh, I don't know why we have a cat, but we had a cat. We don't have a cat anymore. Cat hated our guts. Didn't like anybody. But even the cat would come into the living room and sit off by herself, but she would still come into the living room when we were watching TV or whatever it might be. So man in the world, he's gathered together in his various associations, clubs and teams, support groups, all of these things. In reality, we know that's what man does when he doesn't have church. All of these groups and gatherings together, well... If you don't have church, you'll gather together under some other heading. Unbeliever today, self-centered. Believer, the church, is to be others-orientated. Acts chapter 2, verse 47, And the Lord adds to the church daily those who are being saved. Church, definition of the word, gathering together of God's people. Why speak of our hope? Thirdly, because the unbelievers are painfully guilty. They're painful, regardless of what they do, regardless of what they say, they know, John chapter 16, verse 8, and when He has come, the Holy Spirit within the believer, He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And the world, they're convicted of sin, righteousness, and judgment. They know that they are sinners. They know that there is a God. 
They may not admit it, they may deny it, but deep down inside they know, and they know that one day they are going to have to stand before that holy God and give an account of themselves. And what, what, when, that's, <clears throat> when that's down the road, when that's coming down the track, that train's coming down the track, you know that one day, one day I'm going to have to give an account of myself, and there's just absolutely no peace in that. And so whether you admit it or not, all are as guilty as sin, and they know it. They'll even try to joke about it. The world, what do they call living together? They call it living in sin. The word sinister, it speaks of somebody who is evil because of sin. Las Vegas, sin city. Make a joke out of it, but one day you will have to stand before the Lord in the terror of the Lord. Fourthly, why speak of our hope? Because unbelievers are filled with anxiety. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 14 through 15, As much then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That anxiety, anxiety it's as if they're playing Russian roulette with their lives never knowing when the gun can go off, never knowing when death can come. It's as if they're jumping out of an airplane, not knowing who packed the parachute. And so the world, there's a lot of anxiety. As far as the born-again believer, God has given us a desire and sanctity for life, but nonetheless, absent from the body, is to be present with the Lord. And so God has told us in His Word to be anxious for nothing but by everything prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God, and then the peace of God that surpasses understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And again, that's one of those promises that you should have in your Bible and cling to because it's a promise that is given to the born-again believer. And it's that which we need to hold on to because the world offers absolutely no peace or any resemblance of peace that they might have is just something that is temporary. What God gives us is sure and permanent. It's been said, Dad takes care of his children, but who will take care of the orphan? His children were children of God through faith in Jesus Christ. So why all of this introduction with Peter and sharing the word? Because at some point, two men named Ithiel and Eucal asked a man, Akur, about the hope that resided within him. We don't have the question, that specific question that he was asked, but chapter 30 is really his response. They asked him somewhere along the line about something about God, and he's going to go into detail in his answer. The only clue that we have to this man is really in the definition of his name and and that can be iffy. Some say there were even pseudonyms uh, that Solomon used. I don't know. But Agur, it means hireling or gatherer. And Jeketh, his father's name, means to obey. I'm the son of obedience sent out to, uh, sent out to, ga- uh, <laughs> sent out to gather. Sent out to gather. Sent out to gather what? Sent out to gather fish. Sent out to gather God's people. Sent out to gather the harvest however it is that you want to look at it. Anyway, these questions that these men asked, we're going to look at verses 2 through 6 tonight and see the introduction to his answer. Here, Agur gives us insight concerning anyone who claims to know the mind of God. 
Now keep in mind, this is before Jesus Christ, when he was writing this, who is the Word and the image of the invisible God. So we have a great advantage over this man. Sections of the scripture had even yet to be written and even put together. This is a reality, though, that Job came to, because Job thought he had God all down, and his friends thought that they did as well. Agur, he's starting out in a very humble manner, but we studied Job not too long. Well, it was just before Proverbs. And in Job 38, verse 2, God let, it, let him go, and he let him go, and he let him go. Then finally, in chapter 38, it's as if God got in his face and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by words without knowledge? Who is this who darkens counsel? Yeah, there's an opportunity for counsel here, but you have darkened it. Why? Because you have spoken words without any knowledge. You're speaking incorrectly of me and who I am. They were presenting, Job and his buddies were presenting God as the punisher. God does not desire to be the punisher. He did prepare hell, but hell was prepared for the devil. It was God's desire that all men would be saved and come to a knowledge of him. And so, we, again, traditional religion always taught me that God was mad and don't mess up. God's not mad. There's enmity with the sinner. There's no doubt about that. And he who dies in a sin is going to be judged. But as far as the born-again believer, his love has been lavished upon us. And I have great responsibility because God has given me great privilege. And so Agur, he starts his answer to these two men with a humble confession. He's going to ask a series of five questions here that point to the impossibility of anyone having perfect knowledge of God. We know because of the holy, holy, holiness of God that the knowledge of Him transcends human understanding to such a degree that no one will completely ever know or understand the totality of who he is. It's just impossible. Matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 29.29, told the secret things are the Lord. God hasn't even revealed everything. You couldn't comprehend it. But there's going to come a time. We saw this. Might as well say it because God's brought it up. This would be the third time. On our Wednesday morning study, the men as we're going through, book of Revelation, and then tonight as I gave the devotion to the teachers, the kids are studying, um, they're studying the fresh awareness of the goodness of God as they're laying the foundation in Ezra for the, for the rebuilding of the temple. But you have the church, you've got three instances in heaven where the, you're seeing this group of people sing this new song, again singing a new song, fresh awareness of the grace of God. The first instance you have is in Revelation chapter 5. What happens there? There's the church. And John is looking, and it's asked, who is worthy to take the title deed of the earth? And it's as if everybody's looking around, and John comes to the realization, the answer to that is nobody. Nobody. And it brings him to the point of despair, and brings him to the point of tears. And then all of a sudden, it's the only place you see tears in heaven, then all of a sudden you see this lamb that looks as if it had been slain, who is worthy, who has overcome, who has prevailed. And it's he who is worthy to take the title deed of the earth. And as he takes that title deed of the earth, there's that great heavenly choir that sings and shouts out. What are they singing and shout? Well, they've come to a greater awareness of the grace of God. They're singing a new song because, well, that's us. 
And they realize that I was lost, but now I'm found. And they're coming to, as they're standing before God, they're just coming to that great awareness of who they used to be, but who God has recreated them to be at that point. And they sing out that new song. And then further on in chapter 7, you've got those tribulation saints. Tribulation saints, they weren't saved before the rapture of the church. Because if they were saved, they would have went when the church was raptured. So, as I've said before, at the rapture of the church, there's not one born-again believer here on earth. It's completely empty of born-again believers. But I have to imagine, because of our witness, and again, we very well could be witnessing to people who will be getting saved during that time of tribulation, but because of the Word of God, there's going to be people, the witness of that, even that rapture, there's going to be people who start to get saved. And those people are going to live in even more trying times than we live in today. They're going to be killed for their faith. They're going to be martyred for their faith. And it shows them in heaven in chapter 7, and there they are, and they're realizing the magnitude of their salvation because I was worthy of death. Matter of fact, the lack of salvation, and these are probably people that attended church and heard sermons, maybe attended church every day, maybe read their Bible every day, but never got right with God, and they realized their, their, their lack of salvation was verified because they weren't raptured. And now all of a sudden it kind of hits them in the face how far from God they really were. And the dangerous position to sit in church and think I'm right just because I'm a sitter and a hearer and maybe a reader or whatever you might be, but it never penetrated through to their hearts. But now God in His great grace and His abundant mercy has saved them. And now they're in heaven and they've been martyred for their faith and they're understanding the magnitude, how lost they were, but now God has found them and there they are in the presence of God, how undeserving, and they shout it out and they sing a new song. Fresh awareness of God's grace. And then there's one more group in Revelation chapter 14. These again, these are people who weren't saved at the time of the rapture of the church. Matter of fact, these are the people who were without excuse because these people had God's word throughout, well, just about throughout all of humanity. And they didn't see the Messiah. They didn't see the Messiah. But then there was the rapture of the church. And I have to believe, I don't know how true this is, just speculation on my part, but these are disciples of two great witnesses that came about during that time. It's the 144,000. 144,000 evangelists that God uses to change the world. And they're understanding the magnitude of God's grace. Not only were they saved, but they were also sealed. There is this great hatred today against Israel. I was talking to one guy who was an unbeliever and goes, let me ask you, how come all that stuff is going on in Israel? What did Israel ever do? A great opportunity to share the gospel. And so these guys, there's Israel, the persecution of Israel, but it's not going to be how bad it's not going to be now, how bad it's going to be during the time of tribulation. But God sealed them and God kept them through. If you ever read chapter 14, really it kind of jumps ahead. It's speaking of the second coming of Christ. Christ has come. It's just projecting in, in the future. And there they are. They're on that mountain, Mount Zion, with Jesus Christ. And if you'll notice, it says 144,000. It doesn't say 139,099. He was able to keep them all. And what are they doing? They're understanding the fresh awareness of the grace of God. as God that, that loves me tremendously, that has worked all of these things out, not only for my salvation, but for my salvation, 
but also for the salvation of the others. And that not only causes them to sing a new song, but it also motivates them in ministry. And God has showed us these things that we would see the reality of them, that we would be motivated in ministry. That those people who come to faith in the midst of the tribulation, that they would be motivated in ministry. And the 144,000, that they would realize and understand that they have missed, that Israel has missed their Messiah but not completely. It's not finalized yet. There was still opportunity to turn. Matter of fact, that's what the tribulation is all about. God wringing out the last of believers. First question to ponder. How can any living person have a perfect knowledge of God? Verse 2. Surely I am more stupid than any man and do not have the understanding of a man. I neither learned wisdom or have knowledge of the Holy One who has ascended into heaven or descended. How many times have you heard someone describe God based upon what they think that he should be? And I think this man is kind of concerned about that. Doesn't want to give false information. Doesn't want to darken counsel. Wants to make sure that he gives the truth. And right off he's showing that, you know what, I'm just, I'm just a man. And you should never give a description of God based upon who you think God should be. It's a blatant violation of the first commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, thou shall have no other gods before me. Because to give your opinion on who God is, is to fashion a God after your own image or your own opinion. The person who gives their opinion of God, apart from the biblical reality of God, is fashioning through opinion this false God. And so, notice his limited understanding. To know God, he is thinking that man would have to ascend to him. I'd have to go up to him. It's just beyond him right now that God, because of his great love and grace, would descend down to mankind. In Romans chapter 10, I don't know if Paul was looking at that section of Scripture, but Romans chapter 10, verse 6 says, But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above, or who will descend into the abyss. This is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart, that the word of faith which we preach, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness and one uh, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. So if only you could have told a guard, listen, I know the gospel. It was revealed to me. God showed me. He gave us his word. He sent his word. And now, yeah, you can give a detailed, as much as God has revealed himself, description of God to mankind. We'll look at that at the end. But nonetheless, not only can I, must I. We have a responsibility to do that if you are a born-again believer. We do not because... I'm sorry, we do not become more spiritual or gain better understanding of God by ascending. And so many churches have fostered confusion because, well, they decide to get into the really high things of God. We get into the high things of God every time we meet. It's just simply in His Word. You know, if you're sitting there looking for the high things of God, you're not going to find Him. They're not there. Matter of fact, really, it's something that usually gets you off track. Or, after service, we're going to have a special meeting to get into the really deep things of God. There are no 
real deep things of God. God has revealed everything that He has revealed. If somebody's got anything that's really high or really low, it's probably really off. It's been my experience. I remember at a church I was attending, these guys were getting together. Well, really, it was this one guy getting together, and they were going to go up on Mount Baldy and spend time up there and get into the really deep things of God. And it turned out to be somebody who was trying to draw people after himself, trying to fleece the sheep. And so it's not about looking for the deep things, the high things, or any other thing. Just find contentment in the revealed things. Because the revealed things are a lifetime of things. If you spend your life in the revealed things, I guarantee you, you will know God. Just read the Word of God. Pray for understanding. Second question to ponder is, have you considered creation? And so, again, he's limited in the revelation of God. And Proverbs 30, verse 4, who has ascended into heaven or descended, and who has gathered the wind in his fist? Since the Word of God was limited at this time, which would in turn limit theology, what he's doing is he's considering natural theology. Now, if you remember, there are three ways that mankind knows of God. First one is the most obvious, it's the Word of God. It's not only the most obvious, it's the most thorough. Secondly, is through creation or natural theology. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, you know, notice the play on words here, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. And this is the proof text in your ass, that, that deep theological question, what about the natives back in the deepest parts of the jungle in South America, or wherever it might be, wherever it is that that person is real concerned about the natives? Well, even by creation, they will be without excuse. They're not going to be able, unless somebody tells them, how will they know without a preacher? not going to be able to describe the gospel in detail, but they will know of the existence of a holy God because of creation. I know God because of the Word. I know Him in detail. I know of God because of creation. And I know of the existence of God because of the love that believers have for one another. John 13, 35. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Why? Because the world is seeking love. But the world is seeking love based upon what they can get out of it. When they see sacrificial love, that speaks of something different, something contrary to their mind. Man can neither make the wind increase or decrease. He's just looking at that portion of natural phenomena. We have an advantage living here in California because instead of tornadoes or hurricanes, we've got earthquakes. Why is that an advantage? Because you don't know when they're coming. You have an earthquake, it was like, what was that? And all of a sudden it's done, for the most part. You know, sometimes, you know, they'll last a minute or so, and, and that's just an time for an intense time of prayer. Lord, please stop this. But how would you like to say, you live in California, and they say there's going to be a 7.0 earthquake tomorrow at noon. Is all you're going to do is worry about it and think about it. Well, as far as tornadoes and hurricanes, they know that they're coming, and that's what you've got to think about, that they're coming. We know that the big winds are coming, and the problem is you can do absolutely nothing about it. 
You know, earthquake, we can't do anything about it. Not a big deal because as soon as it's here, it's gone. Tornado or hurricane, it's coming. The only thing you can do is run and hide. I should have took a picture of it. I would have posted it up there last time I was at my mother-in-law's. She's got a little pillbox in the backyard. It's just this little concrete cap thing that's got these two doors, and you walk in these two doors, and you walk down this ladder, and it's a shelter for hurricanes, or not for hurricanes, but for tornadoes. Because I've been in Oklahoma right after, I think a week after a tornado, and there was like places where houses were, and there was just like nothing there. And they, they'll bounce, or they'll just plow through, or whatever, but they leave destruction in their wake. And again, there's not a thing, and there's not a thing at all that they can do to be able to stop that. There's only one person. He holds them in his hand, and it's God. And God. And I don't know why God allows these things to happen as he allows them to happen. I don't know why he allows them to strike when he's, they strike and, and all of these things, but the world even knows it. Because what does the world call these things? The world calls these things acts of God. And there's great responsibility in that. That's natural theology. They realize it's from God, although they refuse to acknowledge God. So all of these acts of God, are they random? Well, if they do, then... God's not God, or are they under his control? And I have to wonder, <clears throat> why does God not like Oklahoma? Because they have earthquakes now and tornadoes. Well, I don't know what they've been doing. Um, Isaiah chapter 40, verse 12, is very similar to this. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, measured heaven with a span, and calculated the dust of the earth in a measure, weighted the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? God has. Third question, next question to ponder is, have you pondered his providence? Verse 4 again, who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? And what he's speaking of here, he's speaking of the rain that comes from the heavens. And so the idea is our God who brings forth the rain, well, it goes deeper than just bringing forth rain. It goes a lot deeper than just water falling out of the sky. Because back then, it was the providence, well, it still is today, but there was a higher awareness that it was the providence of God. Because when the rain comes, that was guaranteed that we would have food in the next harvest time. It's guaranteed that, well, especially if it was drought, but that, or if it wasn't, that there's not going to be drought, but there's going to be drinking water. And then just the beauty of the land that has been refreshed by a rain shower. My wife kept after me during winter, unplug the sprinkler timer. And I just never did it. So finally I unplugged the sprinkler timer because we really don't need it to go off during the winter time, even in the drought season. So spring comes and things are kind of looking drab and it's like, oh yeah, I turned off the, the timer. I got to go turn it back on. Well, I didn't realize that when I went and reset it, you've got to reset it for two weeks. And I just reset it for one week. And so the water was only going off every other week. And I'm thinking, why is our front lawn like dead? How come every, all the plants are just kind of looking? And it took me quite a while to figure out. I'm not the sharpest tack in the drawer all the time. But it took me a while to figure it out. It wasn't getting water. And again, the water, where does the water come from? Well, Pastor Mike, you turn the spout and the water comes out. And that's a problem. That's a problem because we so take these things for granted. Back in Israel's day, back in this day, they didn't take it for granted they realized that that came from God. This is another area, because of our wisdom increasing, foolishness really has set in. Now that we can explain rain and the source of it, 
we forget about God. And I say the source of it as far as the condensation going up into the clouds, carrying over the land, and all that stuff. Now that we can describe all of these things and we've got insight into all these things, we, we've kind of pushed God out of the equation. But again, God does the supernatural through the natural. And when you think about it, even the natural, that is the supernatural. We, once again, just take these things for granted so easily. Biblical days, plentiful rain was considered to be a blessing from God. I was on a church basketball league with a guy who was a strawberry farmer in Ontario. They had a piece of property in Ontario or Montclair, wherever it was. But nonetheless, and before we play basketball, we do a devotion and, <clears throat> excuse me, we do a devotion and have prayer requests and all. And one of his constant prayer requests was that God would send rain. Because if he had to turn on the pumps, it was going to cost him a lot of money and it was going to cut into the profits of the farmer. And so he was asking that we would seek God out on his behalf. Matthew chapter 5, verse 45, the last part says, For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. He blesses his people. And because he blesses his people, even the unbeliever is blessed because God blesses us. Fourth question to ponder is, have you considered who it is who keeps order over the events of man? Again, verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? I'm looking at this question with the focus on the end of the earth. God has his hand upon everything that occurs in our life and even in our existence. All working towards one end the salvation of mankind. So because of that, Romans 8.28, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are the called according to His purpose. This is the portion of the Word that is the foundation for our hope that in turn is the anchor of our souls. Because I know all things are working together for the good. Because I know that God is working things towards those end times, I can continue to trust in the midst of trials when these things are going on that I don't understand. I can continue to pray with boldness in the midst of persecutions. I can know that I will prevail even in the midst of poverty. And I know that I can succeed even when I am suffering because it's not about me, it's about God and it's about God working all things together for the good. They're going to be hard, but God's working these hard things so that good things would happen in the lives of those who love Him and are the called according to His purpose. Romans 8.18, so Paul says, For I consider that the suffering of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which will be revealed in us. The suffering of this present time, the sufferings of this present time, are not worthy to be compared for the glory that will be revealed in us. What is Paul exhibiting? He's exhibiting hope, trusting in God for his future, not focusing upon the trials of the day, but his future with the Lord Jesus Christ. Last question to ponder is when considering who God is, what is his name? Verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has gathered the wind in his fist? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name, if you know? Name, again, it speaks of the nature and the essence of a person. Nature speaks of their character. Essence speaks of the core of that person. 
It's interesting how the Son is tied in here. In John 14, 7, if you had known me, you would have known my Father also. For uh, From now on, you know him and have seen him. And, and uh, again, Akur, what is his name and what is his Son's name? Well, the only reason I know the nature and the essence of God, we're going to be looking at this on Sunday morning, is because of the Son. That section of Scripture that we've looked is the definition of God's name is in the book of Exodus, chapter 33. I'll just quickly go through it and then we'll close. But again, at the end of Exodus, chapter 33, Moses says, I want to see you. I want to see you, God. And God says, you can't see me and live. But Moses continues to persist and God says, okay, stand here at this rock. Stand in the cleft of the rock and my glory will pass before you. And so he did in the glory, and he says he just saw the backside of God's glory. And again, I use the example of a meteorite. You see the tail of a meteorite. God's brightness, nobody can comprehend that. But Moses, as he's standing on the rock, as he's in the cleft of the rock, again, the only way I can see God is standing on the rock, Jesus Christ, in the arms of Jesus Christ, if you will. And that glory passed before him, and he's able to just get as much as a human is able to comprehend. And he saw that, and it's, just a, it's as if God says, well, but that's not how you see me. That's not how you know me by looking, because again, you just simply can't comprehend. Now, as God was passing before him, something else was going on. God was making a proclamation. God was speaking something. How do we know God? The only way we really know God is through his word, in detail anyway. It says now in chapter 34, verse 5, Now the Lord descended in a cloud and stood with them there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. He was doing this during the, what was described in chapter 33. And the Lord passed before him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering, abounding in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, by no means clearing the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So here's Moses. Now he perceives who God is. Not because he physically saw Him, but he heard the Word of God and now he knows Him as much as God has revealed Himself to him. And so now look at Moses' response. It's as if he's singing a new song. So Moses made haste, bowed his head down to the earth and worshipped. Then he said, If now I have found grace in your sight, O Lord, let my Lord, I pray, go among us, even though we are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your inheritance. What Moses is understanding now is God has revealed himself that God can mesh with man. Because God's not just judgment. If he's just judgment, then everybody dies. But because God is gracious, because he's merciful, because he's long-suffering, because of all how God revealed, he's now comprehending that God can have fellowship with mankind. It's not based upon mankind, it's based upon God. And because of that, because of that display, that revelation, Moses bowed his head and worshipped the Lord. The last two verses back in Proverbs 30, every word of God is pure. And so he understood that. I wonder if he understood it because compared to us, he had a little, and so he held it in great value. But every word of God is pure. He is a shield to those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words. Again, don't define your own God. At least he rebuke you, and you be found a liar. Father, once again, we just thank you, Lord, for your word. 
your word, even as these two men one day, just at some point in history, asked this question, and at some point in history, this man wrote these things down, but it's for our understanding. We know that he was moved by the Holy Spirit to do so, and he was moved so that we would hear these things today, that we would apply these things to our lives today. And so, Father, again, we thank you for your teaching, your instruction, that you would bless us for being here tonight, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Will you all stand, please? couple of things. We have a men's breakfast scheduled for September 6th here at the church, 8 o'clock. That's on a Saturday.